will people notice if I spend hours editing this down or will a message come across if as long as they have some core elements here, like what were they working on? What was the problem? How did they approach it? And what kind of outcomes or benefits or feedback did they get from that approach? And I tried to keep it less structured. I was mainly just trying to figure out okay, what, what do you got so far that I can leverage and then I, I don't mind kind of not ghostwriting, but putting together pieces and filling in stuff and saying, can you tell me a little bit more in this section or what tools exactly did you use or how did it go? Or how did you get the first meeting set up? Um, so more, more really to answer questions I had and hoping that others that might read those these books would have similar questions on how do they get started and what are the things they need to know about to be prepared so they feel confident walking in and offering that service to organizations. Hey everybody, I'm Elizabeth Swan. And I'm Tracy O'Rourke, and we are from the Just In Time Cafe. Welcome to our podcast. At the cafe, we wrestle with tough questions. We talk to groundbreakers, discuss great books, get insights from Lean Six Sigma practitioners who are making a difference in the world. And we let you in on helpful apps, we bring you the news, and we challenge the status quo so you can build your problem-solving muscles. So Elizabeth, what is on the cafe menu today? I'm so glad you asked, Tracy. Today's highlight is our interview with author Brian Hurley, who hosts the podcast Lean Six Sigma for Good. Brian is a master black belt by day, but he has dedicated himself to bringing his Lean Six Sigma skills to making the world a better place, which is great news for everybody. Next up, it's an app that helps you dot your I's and cross your T's. And for Q&A, we asked our problem-solving community, how do you make sure you make improvements with people instead of to them? And that makes it a great new day at the cafe, Tracy. Very cool. Up next, it's hot Yes, Tracy, today's app is called Todoist, and it does just that. Helps you keep track and complete all of your to-dos. Yes, I am very much a to-do list person. So I was very excited to learn about this app that organizes your to-do list no matter where you are or what device you use, offline or online, no matter. <laughs> I have to admit, I have run into situations before where I have more than one to-do list. It drives me crazy, mostly because I use different devices. Like I have, oh, I'm on my phone, I'm, I'm in the store and I remembered something brilliant and I had to write it down on my phone because I didn't have my to-do list that's on my computer at home. So, and sometimes I have to write things down on a piece of paper too. So this idea that I need to have a to-do list anywhere I go that follows me around, kind of like my phone, um, so that would be helpful. So I love this idea, helps you stay organized. You know, I honestly, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, I do get the feeling that sometimes things are falling through the cracks, you know, in the middle of the night and I can't sleep. And so I really would like a better way, is I'm always looking for better ways to do things as we are, right, Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. And it'd be great to see a better way to organize tasks uh, that we have every day too. So that's the Todoist. It has the ability to do different to-do lists based on work, home, or other. And you can even assign tasks to coworkers or family members. And so 
I don't actually, I wasn't clear if it would like send a note to your co your, your family member, or if you have to tell the family member and then you just follow it up on your own <laughs> with the app. But anyway, I'm going to do some more research on that. Um, so using this app frees up your mental space and it helps you increase your number of Z's you're going to get at night because hopefully your to-do list isn't keeping you awake at night and you can regain clarity and calmness by getting all those tasks out of your head and onto your to-do list. So what did you discover when you looked it up, Elizabeth? Man, you were painting a nice picture, although it's cracking me up. I'm thinking you can assign tasks to people in your family, which would be my husband. I still think he'd pay it any mind. I don't think I'd get, I don't think anything good would come of that. Just saying. But the, uh, the website's pretty interesting. They've got a lot of resources. They publish these beautifully illustrated blogs on things like you know, being productive with remote colleagues or holding walking meetings or how students can stay sane. It's also got a feature where you can submit questions to them via email. It's called ask at doist.com. And then they post the answers in the form of an article. So you can see what other people's questions were like, you know, what do they do? Their boss quit. They were totally stressed out. And it kind of looked like remote therapy. Look kind of like that was interesting. You can also view your to-dos in a Kanban board format. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Kanban board, it means you're looking at columns. And the first column is to-do. The next column is doing. And maybe the, another column, if you want it, is done. Or it could just disappear. And you could actually drag your, uh, your ideas or your to-dos into the doing phase, you know, when you're starting to get to your to-dos. Uh, so that's interesting. And I heard about the app from our colleague, Chris Burnham. He's the host and producer of the Lean Leadership Podcast. He told me he loves this app. And what he loves about it is he has it wherever he goes. Like Tracy was saying, it's on his phone. It's on his computer. It's on his iPad. It's on Alexa. You didn't even mention that, Tracy. It's on I that. didn't. And I love that. Uh-huh. And so when he, when he thinks of something, it goes on as to do us, and it's the 21st century electronic way to write something down. And then he can use short codes to assign priority projects um, and when something is due and tag it with other searchable items. So he makes them searchable. That's kind of cool. You didn't mention that, Tracy. No, Chris has way more experience than He's, me. He loves this thing. He also has a project for every one of his coworkers. So when something comes up, in a meeting that he's curious about, he notes it in their project and he asks, he asks them about it later in their one-on-ones instead of interrupting a meeting. Isn't that cool? That's, that's I know you would love that. You would love that if I did that because I'm an interrupter. Yeah, it's usually a good, you, you have good reasons, Tracy, unless you don't. And then I tell you, you have a very, very <laughs> bad, <laughs> very bad interruption. He also has it integrated with his Gmail so if he can't answer an email in two minutes, he clicks a button and adds it to his to-doist. He's bad, man. He's really good. Then he archives the item out of his inbox. And when he clicks on the link in Todoist, it opens the email again. Um, and he says he is the most productive he's been in years and he is not exhausted. And the, the app is his secret weapon. So it's his total endorsement that got me curious about the app. So then I Here. thought, well, yeah. So then I thought, well, let's, let's look at the pricing. Uh, there's a free version. There's the three months, uh, $3 a month for pro. There's five bucks a month for teams. Free version, you're limited. You can have five active projects, five collaborators per project, a five megabyte file upload limit, um, and one week of active history, activity history. 
Uh, for three bucks a month, that jumps to 300 projects, 100 megabyte file uploads and reminders and lots of other bells and whistles. So I'm still experimenting with it like you are, but it's quite intuitive. And I'm like you right now, I just put a little to do a checkbox next to something in my notebook. As soon as I remembered, I'm like, oh, that's got to happen. But then I'm looking back, you know, on my pages to see. I shouldn't admit how I keep track of my to-dos. But anyway, <laughs> this could be an upgrade. It could be. And I love the idea of the email and putting it in your to-do list, to-doist to-do list, because I am really still not a huge fan of the flagging options I currently use. And I just feel like there could be a better way. Maybe I could just tell Siri how to do everything and then it would be great. But you know what I think is cool? I kind of like the name too. It's kind of catchy, right? I mean, I, I, I buy a shirt that says I'm a to-doist. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think Chris might have like the whole collection, the hat, the shirt, yeah. you know, stationary. I think you're right. All right. So we're going to include the link to Todoist on the podcast post on our website. So you can check it out for yourself. I'm Elizabeth Swan, and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. In a short while, you'll get to hear our interview with Brian Hurley. Next up, it's an issue we pose to our community. How do you make sure you make improvements with people instead of to them? And some years back, I was working with Alberta Health Services. That is way up north in Canada. And I remember a whole team of nurses doing a 5S, which is a workplace organization project. Uh, they did it to the nursing station. They reorganized the space to make it easier to access the information and find records. They were intensely proud of their work. And when the nursing night shift arrived, they saw the new setup and they switched it all back before morning <laughs> because the improvement team neglected to include them. Um, and I've seen that again and again. I know you have. I remember another example where a team lead had done a really good job of including others. She was trying to reduce the number of incidents in preschool classrooms. So incidents meant anything where a kid got hurt, property got damaged, activities got disrupted. And when she observed the classrooms and worked with the teachers, they all realized that the setup of the room had a lot to do with the incidents. Like low bookshelves in the middle of the space <laughs> turned into launch pads. Like kids were just like leaping off these things. And the large open spaces, those were just like high-speed racetracks. So they experimented, they discovered that creating the separate nooks for reading and a nook for napping, and they reduced the incidents and kids ran around outside and they left and they skipped rope, just not in the classroom. And the incidents dropped across the board except for one classroom. And the leader realized she hadn't had the time to work with that particular teacher. So she took it on herself to move all the furniture into the new layout for the classroom over the weekend. She thought she was doing her a favor. And when she visited the classroom, she saw it had been returned to the original layout. So that's the kind of lessons we learn and they're painful. And we put this out to our community and I got a nice quote from Lakshmi Aurora. She's a continuous improvement administrator at Johnston Equipment. And she said, 5S and isolated solutions aren't best friends in the making. I love that quote. It just points out the need for relationships when you're going about changing processes, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, nobody really wants to come back from vacation and then someone says, oh, while you were gone, we changed all your processes. Here you go. Not a good thing. 
And so, and I see that that happens a lot because people think it's faster and it isn't, <laughs> right? Trying to help. Because, I mean, and, and, and I, I kind of see that, you know, people say, well, it'll just be faster if I do it myself. But what they don't realize is when they finally get to the improvement, they get all the resistance and then they wonder why people don't change. And I always say, well, what could we have done differently to get more, more, support around that change. So they're always sort of blaming the people like they don't want to change, but they don't always think about and reflect about how they could have approached it differently to get a different change. So our colleague, author and founder of TKMG, Karen Martin, posted that one of her early lean teachers said it's uplifting to Kaizen, but it's traumatizing to be Kaizen. <laughs> She notes that it applies in life as well. Inclusion is the key. And I absolutely agree with that. Uh, from your LinkedIn post, respect for others, true collaboration and putting yourself in another's shoes are good principles to remember, especially in the rush of getting things implemented at work. Um, here's a great idea from Adam Lawrence, the author of The Wheel of Sustainability. So when he's dealing with Kaizen events, which are another word for rapid improvement events, if you are not familiar with those, uh, the key element of his wheel is clarifying benefits. So the team goes out while they're in the middle of developing their improvements and they share what they're thinking and why with the people who aren't on the team. And they do this one-on-one uh, -on -one, and then everyone comes back with feedback and challenges and it becomes a re reality check for how the organization might react and respond to the changes before it's too late. That is super practical. And I'm gearing up to run a remote Kaizen event with a client. And this is part of our communication strategy. It, um, it's so critical, isn't it? Absolutely. And so I think as people get very busy, which we all are, um, stakeholder management and getting people on board becomes for some reason less of a priority. It's like people don't have time to do that soft skill stuff. And so they just think, oh, it's not important. And then the toll gate, just get shut down and you're just like, well, that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so here's some advice from Lauren Hissey, who is our go-to Lean Six Sigma coach for all things to do with artificial intelligence. She says, this also includes technology. She's seen similar things with technology as part of the solution when RPA, Robotic Process Automation, or IA, Intelligent Automation, is implemented but the employees continue to use the old process. IT or technology experts didn't understand the current state and thought technology would solve the problem without fixing the process first. Yikes. So when you include everyone in the problem solving and developing the improvements, they have ownership. They feel like they participated. They get, you get better buy-in and adoption. And you know, I also think that sometimes people don't they want to kind of go around the people they think are difficult. Mm. No, mm. that would be the worst thing That's you could bad. do. You got to involve them. And sometimes they can be your biggest advocate, especially if they're an influencer in their peer group. Yeah. So don't be afraid to involve people that you really think about who do you really need to support this? And I think that could be really helpful. Um, so right, Tracy. And here's a great observation from Dr. Sabiha Mumtaz. Uh, she's an assistant professor at the University of Wollongong in Dubai, and she's been a guest of the show. Um, and here's a great quote. 
Just the fact that we have the option to say no makes us more amenable to say yes. Isn't that just so true? Just giving people that option, right? So that's what she does in her own practice. She tries, she tries for co-creation, like you know what you and I are talking about, give other people a chance to be involved. But if it's not possible, she provides her rationale and she asks for feedback. She gives people the option to say no. Absolutely. And I also think what works really well is people are heard, right? Uh -huh. So it's kind of the very similar. They have the option to say no. They feel heard. They're going to be more likely to adopt what is promoted or, or presented to them. So let's end on a really nice quote from Colleen Sapolsa, Lean Six Sigma Transformation Coach. She says, you have to include people in the making of the lemonade so that it will sell at your new stand. <laughs> Such good advice. Great <laughs> observations from our community. They never disappoint. I agree, Elizabeth. We love you, community. <laughs> I'm Tracy O'Rourke, and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. We host these monthly. So you can go to JITCAFE, that's J-I-T-C-A-F-E.com, and go to our podcast page. Coming up next, it's our featured guest, Brian Hurley. Tracy, why don't you tell our listeners a little about Brian? Absolutely. I love Brian. Brian Hurley is a lean Six Sigma master black belt at business performance improvement located in St. Louis, Missouri. He teaches lean and Six Sigma classes. He facilitates workshops and events. He performs statistical analysis and mentors employees through improvement efforts. He volunteers his time with local nonprofits. That's how we came to get to know Brian. He has the podcast Lean Six Sigma for Good, and he is the author of the book series of the same name. And we are so looking forward to con contributing to the next volume uh, that really highlights nonprofits and Lean Six Sigma and the work that people are doing for greater good, which I love. Here, here. Hey, Brian, welcome to the cafe. Thank you. So, so happy you could make it. Yeah. And in doing our due diligence, I discovered that you were a place kicker and a punter at the University of Iowa. So I find that kind of fascinating uh, because place kickers can win games, you know, with extra points and field goals. And I kind of feel like place kickers, are, it makes you part of a team, but then it also makes you a solo operator who can perform under a ton of pressure. So I consider that a great skill for a Lean Six Sigma consultant. What do you think? What do you think of my assessment? I like that. I like that a lot. That's very true. Um, there is a lot of pressure and that was um, one of the drawbacks to that position. But when I had teammates, they would always tell me that when I have a son, I'm gonna come to you and you're gonna kick him how to, teach him how to kick so that they don't have to go through what I'm going through. Um, but then when the game was on the line, they're like, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm amazed. I think 60 minutes recently did a whole segment on place cookers. And I was like, I had no idea. So anyway, I am, I am, I am impressed. Very cool. Yeah. Yes. And Brian, are you playing any sports now? Not lately. No. Um, mainly pandemic wise, but I try to do a little bit of working out and lifting and stuff, but I've had to switch to more of a home gym workout. So 
that's been a big change since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, also, you got a long history of process improvement, you know, like back back to your college days, not only were you the place kicker, but you were studying statistics, uh, which I didn't do. I had to teach myself statistics after the fact in order to be able to teach others. But then you went on to get your master's in quality management and productivity, which I confess I was not aware of uh, that they that master existed when I was uh, getting out of college. So what drew you to quality management? Yeah, I started in statistics because I liked math, and that was one of the subjects that I was doing well in. I tried computer science, I tried biology, and then got weeded out through those early classes and worked really hard to get a C minus and D plus in some of those classes. And I said, I don't know if this is quite the fit for me. Uh, so I went back to something that I was doing fairly well in. And and then I just liked the idea around uh, using statistics for business purposes, like an applied statistics, not some of the academia and like proof of statistics that wasn't really exciting for me. Um, and then because I was playing college football, I had one extra year because there's a you could take a year off the beginning year. And so I actually they paid for one full extra year of school for my senior season. So I looked at grad school as a way to get started and get half of it paid for. And inside the statistics program was a quality management and productivity course. And it talked about, you know, dealing with workers and also as an, had an industrial engineering piece to it and a little bit of economics. And so I thought that was a pretty good balance of process improvement, you know, looking back on it. I didn't know what that was at the time. And this is a very new program. And it was, I think it went on for maybe five or 10 years and they just could never get enough interest. And, but I think now if they had that program available, it would still, it would get a lot of interest. But it was kind of like a Six Sigma process improvement uh, master master program. So I kind of lucked into that and I really liked it. And then got my first job at an aerospace company replacing one of the statisticians. And that's how I got into uh, Six Sigma. And then they were doing a lean initiative. And so I started to learn a little bit more about lean. Wow, you were cutting edge. That is nice. Very cool. <laughs> By coincidence, I had no idea. I was just like, kept following the programs that I did okay in for classes. And it just kept me going into the right direction. Elizabeth and I both majored in English and now we teach statistics. <laughs> That's great. That's uh, I feel lucky that I went through a lot of statistics in school. So uh -huh. it came natural to me. So mm -hmm. I, I forget how challenging it can be for someone who didn't have a strong um, math background or take a lot of those classes in, in school. Yeah. You know, what's funny, too, is uh, we teach statistics like English teachers. <laughs> it's hard to explain. We had to but. break it down, right? We had to break it down for ourselves and make it digestible. So I feel like we kind of gave it in that form to our mm -hmm. students, right? We're like, well, this made sense to me, right? And so yeah. Yeah, not it probably you makes you better teachers of it than I am. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> pretending I'm better teacher well, than you, Brian. I'm not going to say we're better than you, Brian. No, but but <laughs> we do get appreciation. People go, thank you for teaching it in a way that I understood. <laughs> <laughs> That's so important. That is. So, what uh, drew you to applying 
lean and six sigma and quality management into the nonprofit world and sustainability? Probably about uh, 2005, 2006 timeframe. I think I saw, had seen that movie Inconvenient Truth and I was not aware of some of the climate issues going on and the, some of the environmental problems happening. And it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and I don't, I can't say that I jumped right into it right away, but it just started to open my eyes a little bit. And then probably about every year later, I started to get more and more interested in that. Um, my wife has a good background in like environmental causes. And so I started to ask her a lot of questions and then I started to notice like the EPA had put out some stuff around that time, um, lean, lean and green or lean in the environment. Mm. And so I went through a lot of their free workbooks and just kind of tried to digest it. And they put together some case studies and it kind of really sparked some interest in me that, well, we can use this outside of, you know, manufacturing. And I enjoyed my work, but it, I wasn't really passionate about the aerospace industry necessarily. Um, I didn't, you know, have a lot of background in aeronautics and, you know, it was just kind of like black boxes we were building in my mind. So this gave me something that I really got interested in and is excited about. Um, and then to see like there wasn't very many people doing this yet, I thought this is something I could kind of leverage. And, and that turned into some, well, I first needed to get more education around it. So I went back to get some education around sustainability. So the University of Iowa had a, it just started a sustainability certificate. So I went, went back and took some of those classes um, while I was still working. And then um, the nonprofit part just kind of came out of working with some organizations they all seemed to have a nonprofit focus that were working environmental issues. And then I saw the opportunity there as you start to broaden and look at how many different nonprofits are out there. And, and the, then the, you broaden it to social issues and seem like, you know, there's, doesn't seem like there's enough people maybe looking at that. So I, I just try to think of ways that could help promote that or get more people involved. Uh -huh. um, that is a, that is a great, Man, you had some great opportunities. I know that we try not to like compare ourselves to other people, but I'm having a lot of envy right now. <laughs> <laughs> like the just the opportunities in school and sort of what was uh, what was out there for you. But clearly, you took advantage of it, and it sparked it sparked you. Mm -hmm. um, the the one thing that you know, I guess I'm pretty proud of is that we we the company didn't have that strong of a sustainability program, but. I wanted to get more involved and I thought I had some skills I could bring to the table. And so I um, actually was in Florida and I relocated back up to Iowa and I started participating in some of their teams and we end up doing a, like an electricity reduction project that turned out really good. Um, it's probably one of my favorite projects because it was a lot of work and challenge, but um, we had a lot of success with it. And so uh, just trying to like, figure out how I could get more involved. And there wasn't, you know, no one asked me to participate. I just kind of had to force my way into it, I guess, and say, I can do something with this cost that we have here. I think there's an approach we can take. And can I just get a few people together and work on this? And once I kind of build a business case for it, then they were like, sure, why not? Let's, we haven't really tried anything like that. So, um, 
sometimes you have to make your own opportunities, I guess. Oh, yeah. And the electricity project, I'm going to have to study what you did because every month the electric company sends me this really insulting graph that shows me here's how much electricity you're using and here's how much electricity your neighbors are using. And I feel like saying, <laughs> you know, I live on Cape Cod. This is a resort community. Those people are not in their houses in the winter. I am. <laughs> you need to cut me some slack. That's but true. They're not um, really looking. They're looking at the high level and not really breaking it down for yeah. occupants or non-occupants. Yes. I'm telling them what you said. That, <laughs> that is so funny. I'm sorry to hear that, but um, definitely a bandwagon approach, right? Like, but I mean, and that's what, I mean, when you mentioned that project, that's what's so great about, you know, Six Sigma for Good, the, the version of, you know, Lessons from the Gemba, right? Which I love that it's volume one, you know, more <laughs> is coming, right? Um, so each of these case studies, right, it gives you, uh, you know, this complete kind of a how-to if you want to do that particular um, study. And I'm curious, you clearly have a network of practitioners that are doing work with nonprofits, and um, NGOs and government agencies, services, things like that. What were your guidelines? What guidelines did you give the people that were writing the case studies for, for the book? Um, very little on purpose. Um, I didn't want it to be a huge like editing process or, and I didn't really know what the standard should be for that. And so, and I was also trying to figure out how to make it as easy as possible for people to put something together. Um, and I think what really came to my mind was over-processing or extra-processing. It's like, will people notice if I spend hours editing this down or will it be with a message come across if as long as they have some core elements here, like what were they working on? What was the problem? How did they approach it? And what kind of outcomes or benefits or feedback did they get from that approach? And I try to keep it less structured. I think over time as more volumes, maybe I'll get a little more prescriptive or more of a template for everyone. But I was really just offering up like, hey, I'll, I'll interview you and I'll transcribe it for you. And then we can piece it together or send me that PowerPoint and I'll put together what I can tell is your story. And just because I know people are busy and it's it's hard to carve out time for a project like that. So I was mainly just trying to figure out can, what, what do you got so far that I can leverage? And then I, I don't mind kind of not ghostwriting, but putting together pieces and filling in stuff and saying, can you tell me a little bit more in this section or what tools exactly did you use or how did it go? How did you get the first meeting set up? Um, mm -hmm. more, more really to answer questions I had. And hoping that others that might read those these books would have similar questions on how do they get started and what are the things they need to know about to be prepared so they feel confident walking in and offering that service to organizations. Mm -hmm. That's nice. I I really like there's a lot of different examples for the nonprofit too. Like I like, I really like yours because it's, you know, the setting up that conference and what you learn and applying the lean process improvement to setting that up for nonprofits, which is really cool. I love the gardening one. It involved building a like a volunteer garden that could feed the hungry and yeah. it could serve as a blueprint for others who want to create a volunteer garden, which is great. And um, I was curious to know, 
Um, was it hard finding these people? I mean, did you find the people and then decide that a book needed to be done? Or did you decide that the book needed to be done and then you found the people? Um, I, the book I felt needed to be done. And then I found the people and a lot of them were friends. So Joe, who ran the garden was, uh, a close friend of mine and coworker in one in the Florida site that I used to work at in Melbourne, Florida. Mm. Um, Pat O'Connor, we did a joint project together. Actually, that electricity project, he worked at the utility company as a black belt, and he came with us on that project. And I find out he's also doing volunteer work outside with uh, distributing out the flags for Flag Day and those different holidays. Um, And so he had some great stories. And then, you know, people I'd seen who had done some work, like I'd found some articles or some videos, I'd reach out to them. And the ones that responded were you know, willing to offer up some time to write. Um, yeah, and then just trying to connect with people and see if they're interested. And then, um, yeah, th- that was the idea that I would continue to kind of build this out and had more and more chapters and and then try to figure out how to get a book published and an audio book published. And that was uh, a lot of learnings there, but um, that, that was a really good challenge too. Um. So when you did these, and, and like Tracy's saying, these are the case studies are great. They're, they're kind of blueprints. Like if I wanted to go do, create my own volunteer garden, now you've given, this person has given like a really nice blow by blow. And then it's not, and now I'm listening to you thinking, oh, and you helped fill in some of those questions. Like, how did you get permission? Or, you know, those initial failures. So it's like, let's, those are lessons learned. In the, and I love the series of tips right? Because clearly some of these stumbles, it's like, well, that's a learning. So let's take that. And those learnings, yeah, could apply to any, any project, but they actually, yeah, you're right. They're, they're not necessarily specific to nonprofits. You know, if you read through a lot of them, you'll see that that looks like the same challenge I have at my job or yeah. at work. Um, what I'm wondering is, cause I, I feel like you've created this resource. Have you gotten, and, and, the, and when you talked about yeah, right now I'm fleshing it out, taking the PowerPoint, like trying to work out, you know, what what that story is for, for each person. But have you gotten feedback for, to the extent that someone has used your book to create a garden or replicate any of these projects or spurred them on to do work with a particular nonprofit? Like, what have you heard? I have not heard that. So if anyone has, please reach out and let me know. That would be great to hear. Um, Do you have a conduit for that? Like, is there a way for folks to um, say, hey, I use this or? Not really. The downside is the platform I was using is leanpub.com, which is pretty cool that you could release, you know, a chapter at a time. And that what I, I think Mark Rabin had pointed me to that, or he used that for one of his books and I looked into it, but it doesn't capture contact information for people. So Honestly, I don't even know who all has a copy and who has ordered it. It's kind of like ordering it from anywhere. You, you don't really know who's yeah. read it. Um, it would be great to be able to know that or reach out or connect with some people. So I've been directing people to the Lean Six Sigma for Good website mm. and hoping that they'll um, you know, find other information there or connect with me that way. But yes, definitely if people have stories that they'd like to share, write a chapter. I'm hoping to publish many, many volumes um, or 
Um, if they know of someone else who has done some great work and they want to connect me with them, that'd be great. Yeah, no, I think, well, you got two volunteers right here, Brian, Tracy and I are going to line up and, and write for you, but then uh, that's great. I'm excited. I think we should have our own volume, our whole, vo one whole book. <laughs> you might be able to fill it up. Book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can rattle off six six nonprofits right now and not all of them are my customers but um lots of, you know it's funny when you open that door and i started talking about how i wanted to help more nonprofits and then suddenly i found all these people that have been helping nonprofits so it's really interesting how when the student is ready the teacher appears to a degree right <laughs> um but you know what's interesting too is um, you know, you and I, Brian, have talked about how do you get started in a nonprofit? And, you know, I, I think we had shared, you know, you go to Gemba, you kind of observe their processes, and then you kind of figure out how you can help them. That's how I did it. But one area I'm still curious about, and right now I'm limited to only helping one nonprofit at a time because I donate my time to them. And there's a, only a finite amount of time I can donate because <laughs> yep. I still have to pay the bills. But um, I'm curious to know a little more about, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could help nonprofits all the time or a lot more because there's a grant or there's funding. And I know Elizabeth, her nonprofit found a grant to pay for her, which is great. Did you, have you learned more about that process and through, through this book and working in nonprofits? We talked about that a lot with the Lean Portland group. So um, I'm in St. Louis now, but I was in uh, Portland for seven years and was involved with Maria and Matt and a few others to get really some structure going with how we would work with some nonprofits. And that's where we kind of landed was there's a lot of organizations donating funds and money to the nonprofits and they want to see that donation turn into outcomes and impact. And we thought if they could somehow, you know, itemize out a certain amount of that to say, we want you to learn some of these methods, then that could be a funding source for us to come in and uh, whether volunteer or just, I think a lot of it's just really like coordinating of their volunteers. Cause I think there's enough in the community that would be willing to do that, but it's who's going out there and working these connections and finding them and scoping a project and then having them kind of step in and walk into a nice opportunity. It's that hard work of the connection and building trust and then telling them what you actually are offering to them, which is often a very new thing for the nonprofits. If you go into most large corporations, they're going to know Lean or Six Sigma. They've heard of it and on their team have taken some training. But for the nonprofits, this, this is a new thing still. So there's a, a level of education, maybe an hour Lean 101 training. Mm. Um, so that, that time is really, the I feel like, the hard part. Once we have down, it's been a little easier to find people to go work it. Yeah, because I one of our colleagues, and I don't know if uh, you saw her comment, but Bella Engelbach said when she donates her time, she finds that people sometimes value it less. Like she couldn't get the engagement that she would on a gig where somebody was paying for her time. And I thought, oh, that and that I didn't deal with that. I mean, toward the end of the project with the nonprofit I was working with, 
I started donating my time. I wanted to really see them through and the grant only went so far, but they were completely into it by then. There was no question they were going to show up for coaching. They were going to, you know, be present and use my time well. So that feels like a nice avenue, but I'm mindful that what you say is probably true that you, there's education that has to happen. That's not necessarily a given they've, because the, the woman that was the CEO of the nonprofit I worked with had come from uh, the, uh, the for-profit sector and she'd been a green belt. So she was, didn't need any education, right? She's like, I'm going to get this grant. I know exactly what's for. Yeah. And I've had two clients, uh, nonprofits, both funded through grants. And yeah, it's, it's much easier. And the ones that where we've just volunteered time, um, it goes slower. It, it's not as a higher priority as we'd like it to be. They get other projects and activities. And so can we meet this week? Oh, this is a bad week. What about next week? And it just seems like things drag out. Not that it doesn't drag out in all of our projects, but especially you're right when it, when it's uh, volunteer only and there's no, I don't know, skin in the game, I guess, for mm. the organization, then it's not one of the top issues unless it's driven from the top. And it's usually we're, we're too new to get it to that level yet. We're trying a case study or an example or a showcase area to then get attention to it. So people see that this does work in their organization and they should scale it or try and roll it out to other parts. So Tracy, did you have a question? No, go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking that um, so are you still president of the Recycling Advocates? No. So when I moved, I did hand that over. Um, but yeah, I was the president for about five years. And um, right about the time I was leaving and going into consulting, um, the past president had approached me and said that they thought I would be a good fit for that role. And I said, I just this is the first nonprofit I've been a part of. And I'd been on the board maybe a year at that time. And I did not think I was ready for that. Mm. Um, but I thought this would be a good experience to run a small nonprofit and understand the inner workings if I'm going to be working with them, you know, other nonprofits in the future. Um, so that was a really, um, it was a good experience. Um, I don't know how well I did, but <laughs> I tried the best I can. Um, and that, I think that's very typical. It's kind of like uh, there's a lot of people on boards that are thrust into this role and don't have a lot of experience. And our board members didn't have a lot of experience. And so we're all kind of learning and having to figure it out. And um, you just have to find people who are passionate about the topic. And, and, and I had done some stuff in recycling, and that's how I had gotten connected with because they were looking to do more networking with businesses and organizations around the Portland area. And so that was, you know, I had enough background that had showed interest there. So yeah, that was a good experience. Yeah, I kept reading about that and I'm like, oh, that's such a pun, right? You're Lean Six Sigma and you're trying to reduce waste, like recyclable <laughs> waste is funny. Yep. But yeah, absolutely. And I'm assuming <laughs> at the Just In Time Cafe that you all use uh, reusable coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. With our logo. All right. Yeah, we should <laughs> okay, have it on hand. Good. But of, of course, we <laughs> failed to do that. I will say I have my I have my Lean Six Sigma for good handy. So I um, I'm what am I? This is I guess I had it printed, but 
Um, I'm going to make good use of it. <laughs> I will yeah. never let this out of my sight. It won't <laughs> it doesn't need to be recycled. Um, so Brian, I, I'm sure that people are going to hear this and they're going to say, ah, I want to get involved or I want to, uh, I want to, you know, I want to tell stories. I know you have that, the podcast Lean Six Sigma for Good that people can tell their stories of working with nonprofits on there. Um, obviously I've had some two, two recent guests that I think everyone will enjoy. Oh, do tell. Yes. <laughs> Elizabeth and Tracy had no an excellent way. podcast interview with me. And so they definitely need to check that out and hear oh. the wonderful examples you guys gave. Oh, I, I didn't know you were going to go there, but yes, Brian, absolutely. They should check ours out. Um, but where should they go to reach you and, and connect with you? I think the best place would be lean six sigma for good for.com. And so we're on that site. I've got as many different articles and videos and podcasts that I can find related to many different topics from um, equity to homelessness, to thrift stores, to um, just community service type of projects. Um, anything that I'm related to applying some kind of process improvement method to help with um, some kind of issue. Um, those are the things I'm looking for. And then I think there's over 500 on there now. And so I'm always looking for more. So if you see something that should be on there and it's not on there, let me know. And then that's where I'll pull different podcasts, episodes that I've seen from other people. And then I'll put the podcast that I have on there as well. And then there should be a link to the, the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast on there, along with the books, like the one you showed, the volume one. And um, we got volume two, still a little slow getting that one out, but that should be out hopefully by the end of the year. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. It's too late for anyone to enter any info on that one or not uh, too late. Or, all right. Good. Good. to So got time, but I like your idea of, of a dedicated one for all, all Tracy all the time. <laughs> Tracy like yes. Tracy likes the spotlight, Brian. I'm not sure. Too- <laughs> <laughs> you could um, put her picture right in the middle. Would you? Cause yes. that would <laughs> sell a lot of books. So I, I just got to say just, one of the great things about doing the podcast and I'm sure you feel this way too, is then you form relationships. Like, you know, we've known you, but we haven't known you. And so now not only do I have a better sense of you, but also, you know, and I'm sure you do this to a lot of people. It's like, I'm inspired. Like, I'm like, Oh, like the thrift store near me. I cannot tell you how well run it is. I feel like they don't need me, but there's gotta be a a nonprofit near me that needs me now. Cause uh, I'm, I'm psyched. That's cool. I mean, that might be one we need to reach out to and find out why they're doing so well Ooh. and then try to capture that as a um, maybe some story or something. Or maybe they are applying methods and they don't know it. I think that's something we've all run across it. They didn't know there was a name to it. They just kind of knew that there's better ways to do things. Yeah, maybe they I know had some the help woman. too. I know the woman who's responsible. So I'm going to actually going to reach out to her. That's a good idea. And one last question for you, Brian. So you you just made the move from Portland to Missouri. So what's next? What's coming up for you? What, what's on your horizon besides the finishing of volume two before the, before the end of this year? A great question. Um, you know, just trying to work with and help them work on sustainability as well. You know, I love working on projects and seeing them some success. 
I'm also like looking around the corner too and saying, what's that been and what's in there and where does that go? And what is the electricity bill in this building? I'm just curious, you know, so just trying to um, more projects that have more of a, a real impact, I guess. And, and we can see that with any improvements that are made, whether it's um, reducing inventory or reducing defects or um, streamlining a process, more value, like there is usually an environmental impact to that. And if we look at it from creating jobs and growth, we know that these methods help with that to better reach out to customers and, and offer them more products and services you just freed up with the improvement project. So that creates jobs and that's good for the economy and that's good for some of the social or it brings in more revenue for the tax base that can go to some of these services. I think you just wrote the grant. That's the template for the grant that everyone should be using. <laughs> so, so that's where I, I feel like there's opportunities, the businesses to do more. I mean, there's we have lots of organizations that have uh, experts like us in the organization. How do we get them out into the community to take on some of these projects? And then the companies themselves, they can donate money, but they could also their lean team Mm. Uh, to that team and, and that might have bigger impact than just the money mm -hmm. itself so yeah i mean that's Toyota where i has get excited arm doing that right yeah. that's right yeah. and that's pretty good branding i would think that they've gotten some really good oh, yeah. um branding off the like the meals per hour video they did with the new york food bank which is oh, one of yeah. my favorite videos to show to my classes yeah Me same too. here same for both of us um well it's an honor to have you in the cafe brian and i'm sure we're going to have you back and thank you so much for coming Thank you for inviting me. Good to see you Thanks, too. Brian. Be sure to register for our April 21st webinar with Stephanie Hill, the president of Lightbulb Moment Consulting. She's hosting a session called Hot Tips and Activities to Engage Teams When Facilitating. Stephanie is a phenomenal teacher trainer, so I know we'll be getting great ideas from her. Awesome. I can't wait for that one. And if you're planning your own improvement journey, put our fall semester Lean Six Sigma leadership course on your calendar. We're in the middle of our latest cohort and this course just keeps getting better. It's offered through UC San Diego and the fall class starts at the end of September and goes for 12 weeks. Start planning now and we'll provide a link to all of those on our website. We are so thrilled to have your company the Just In Time Cafe, packed with members of our fabulous community. Join us next month and every month for your jolt of lean caffeine.